Well, as Professor Kulma said, it's back to the future. Uh, Mr. Abe has appeared again. Uh, one would think that somebody with uh, such a dismal record in the past would not be willing to show his face again, but he has. And uh, he's actually done a much better job, I think, than anyone expected. Of course, expectations were very low after his first uh, attempt. Uh, I'm going to talk about him and possible scenarios uh, at the end of this talk. Uh, what I really want to talk about today is the problems that Japan faces and why Japan has not done better, particularly its political leadership since electoral and administrative reform in the 1990s, uh, which everyone expected would change Japanese politics for the better. Needless to say, with a few exceptions, you may have noticed it has not. And that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, Robert and I are beginning to work on a book on prime ministers' political leadership in post-war Japan. And this talk is based on some very uh, preliminary thoughts about that. We're in the very early stages of conceptualizing the book. Um, we will be dealing with institutions in this book formal and informal, and I'll talk a little bit about the informal institutions in a moment, but also issues that political leadership has to deal with make a big difference. And let us not forget that it is not all institutions. Individuals also make a difference. So some of the puzzles about Japanese politics, which personally we consider to be some of real puzzles that no one has really provided a satisfactory answer to. One of those is, despite electoral and administrative reform, which everybody had high expectations would change Japanese politics for the better, it hasn't. Except for Prime Minister Koizumi, arguably the only exception to this rule, leaders have not been able to accomplish much. Whether you agree with their policies or not, they just haven't been able to do much very effectively. I don't think very, uh, very many people would disagree with that statement. But there's a comparative politics puzzle as well in Japanese politics that I don't think anybody has really answered either. And that is, Japan, superficially at least, has some of the same political institutions, a parliamentary cabinet government, as the UK, for example, and several other European countries. And yet, its politics does not operate anything like the UK's. In fact, Aurelia George Mulgan in, in Australia has called it un-Westminster politics. Westminster on one side of a top-down effective policy-making government, Japan completely on the other side of the, policy, of the spectrum when it comes to uh, political leadership, certainly. Um, we believe you can't answer the, these puzzles only by looking at formal institutions because the processes are different and therefore something else must be going on. Part of that answer is we think that there are differences in formal institutions, particularly one that I'm going to point out, but also informal institutions. That is, shared, unwritten rules and norms 
that are not created or enforced through officially sanctioned channels. And political scientists have been looking more and more at these kind of informal institutions. During the talk, I will point out some of the informal institutions of Japanese politics that have created problems, I think, for political leadership. So first, I'm going to go into the major domestic challenges and problems facing Japan. You probably know most of these. I'll just run through them quickly with some graphs and charts. Um, if you look at these, some of these problems, many people, including the mass media, I think, in many parts of the world, look at Japan and think, oh, they're in the same position as the EU, particularly Greece, Spain, Italy, and those other southern European countries that, you know, are about to fail. Um, and the U.S., which has many similar problems as well. Um, I'm going to make a contrary argument here, which is that except for political leadership, Japan actually has a lot more going for it than either some parts of Western Europe or the United States. The problem is political leadership in not facing those problems, as Professor Kulmas you know, indicated in his introduction, and we're gonna, I'm going to look at why prime ministers have so much problem addressing those problems and trying to s and getting them solved. And finally, the Abe Shinzo question, which is, what are some of the likely scenarios uh, of his political leadership? Let's look at the issues first. Everybody knows this. Japan makes Greece look like child's play. The red line is Japan. The other lines are the other industrialized democracies. And as you can see, Japan's debt is enormous. It is going to be twice the GDP very shortly, more than any other country. OECD average is the light blue, the white is the world, and Japan is the dark bar. Think we have a problem? I think so. I hope uh, Angela Merkel is not listening to this talk. Okay. <laughs> uh, we don't. That's true. Well, I, I think Obama is more likely than Angela Merkel. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but anyway, I hope she doesn't catch on to Japan, given what she's done to Greece and yeah. Anyway, um, this is the problem. I think everybody can. Um, agree on this. Population in the world. The only good news for Japan is that in 20 years China will have the same problem. <laughs> um, the red line again is Japan. No other industrialized nation has this much of a rapidly aging population. And that's how Japan has gotten into trouble. People think it's all those concretized streams or all those pork barrel projects. It is not. Since Koizumi, Japan has cut back on public works spending quite and leveled it off or declined quite a bit. Capital spending is the dotted line on the bottom there. Interest payments go across that way. Uh, the red line is non-pension spending. And 
Pension spending is the blue one, blue line. That's Japan's problem, simply put. Japan also has an energy problem, as Professor Kulmas indicated, particularly after 311. The nuclear plants, as you know, have been shut down. Mr. Abe would like to open some of them. How many, in what order, whether they will be safe, those are all important questions that the government doesn't really seem to be answering. And finally, there is island fever, the relationship with China over the Senkaku Dayutai Islands, which I'm not going to talk about in my talk, but I'd be very happy to talk about in Q&A afterwards if people are interested. I'm sure you're not interested at all. Just be the cause of the next world war, you know. <laughs> and it really is a major problem. So these are Japan's major problems. Read them and apparently prepare to weep. But in fact, I think there is still hope for Japan. That debt that we're talking about is not like Italy's or Greece's, et cetera, because it is not held outside the country's borders to a large extent. 93% of Japan's debt is held within Japan, as long as Japanese who hold the government bonds continue to have faith in the government, then everything will not become a major international crisis. Japanese are still productive. Compared to the US, uh, the Japanese are about, per working age resident, as productive as they were in the in 1990s, just about the time the bubble burst. You think public employment sector in Germany is low? It's much lower in Japan. The French love l'état. <laughs> but in fact, despite the rhetoric in my country, Japan has the smallest government of any of the industrialized democracies. And it's not just because of the low expenditures relatively on defense. Private savings is keeping up, and then more so, with government debt. And unlike my country and most others in the industrialized democracies, Japan has a relatively equal distribution of wealth and income, although it has gotten much worse in the past few years, as you can see. The speed of which is not good, believe me. Uh, but it is still in the middle of the OECD countries. That's not good for Japan, but it's not that bad compared to other industrialized democracies. My friend T.J. Pempel, I had dinner with him a few months ago, and he said, uh, you know, I used to be able to get, begin my lectures by saying, other than Sweden, Japan has the most equally distributed wealth and income in the world. I can't say that anymore, and it's true, you cannot. One of the major reasons, the aging population, which is increasing to the in, inequal, unequal distribution of wealth and income. Japan does not spend much 
Its government does not spend that much. The U.S. spends a little less. Thanks to the Republicans, we'll probably be spending a lot less soon. Um, but other than the, uh, the U.S., Japan doesn't spend much on uh, social programs. Again, old age pensions are the real problem there. And don't ever listen to a Japanese talk about taxes. Ever since I've been coming to Japan when dinosaurs walk the earth, I Japanese have been complaining about their tax burden. Forget about it, as we used to say in New York, where I grew up. Forget about it. One of the lowest tax burdens of any industrialized democracy. Okay. There is not much room for Japan to maneuver except to cut pensions. Okay. As you can see there, again, Non-Social Security, non-pensions, non-interest spending, Japan the lowest of any of these OECD countries. So Japan is not the United States. It is not the worst parts of Europe. In fact, it's even in better shape in many cases than Germany is for all of these reasons. So what's to be done? The obvious solution, which I think everybody in Nagatacho, which isn't that far away, will tell you, if they were honest, is they have to raise taxes, cut national pension benefits somewhat, start investing in alternative energy sources, and carry out structural reforms of the economy, such as possibly trans, uh, TPP, especially reform agriculture. My former colleague Takeo Hoshi and a, uh, another prominent economist of Japan have a paper in which they say Japan has only five or ten years to do this. Because beyond that, Japan may have to go on international markets to borrow. They will pay enormously high interest rates if they do, and a huge international crisis that will make Greece make us forget about Greece and Spain and Italy if Japan has this problem. Again, as long as the bonds are held within Japan, that's one thing. But as soon as, if Japan has to go on international markets, it's all over. Okay? They did an analysis, and if I remember the uh, statistics in the paper, they said that even if Japan raised the consumption tax to 17%, which we all know is, no, 25%, which is not that high by European standards, but is very high for Japan and is very unpopular in Japan, as you know, even raising it to 10% over, over the course of time. Japan would only stabilize its debt in 30 years, if I'm remembering their paper correctly. Um, there have been some pension reforms under Koizumi, uh, Greg Noble reminded me of this when I gave a talk uh, elsewhere recently. Some taxes have been raised, some benefits have been cut, and of course the consumption tax has been raised under NODA. So there has been some dealing with this issue. Abe has vowed to cut the deficit in half through economic growth and his Abenomics. How many of you saw the Economist cover of Abe as Superman? We'll see. 
I'll talk about that later. We don't know if Abe will be able to handle this problem or not. So what is the problem that Japan really faces? Political institutions. Whether it's Abe or the other six previous prime ministers who have been miserable flops, or even Mr. Koizumi, who was a reasonable but not complete success, Japan faces a huge problem in its politics and getting anything done. Those of you who are old enough to remember before electoral reform in 1993 may recall that everybody saw Japan as the vaunted exemplar of efficient democratic politics. Everything was great. Japan then had frequent prime ministers, but it didn't seem to matter. Japan was doing everything right. What difference does the prime minister make then? Why are the 2000s different than Japan before the bubble burst? The reason is very simple. The prime minister didn't matter very much prior to electoral and administrative reform in the 1990s. Policy making bubbled up from below and from the national bureaucracy. Voters were stable. They elected LDP during the Cold War no matter what. They had a majority in both houses on, in most cases. And since the 90s, everything that I just said about the pre-reform era has changed. Electoral reform changed to a mixed, uh, to a uh, mixed-member majoritarian system combining a first-past-the-post single-seat district with a uh, regional proportional representation. This has made the party leader's image and the I policy image of the party much more important to voters. Combine this with the increasing influence of television since the 1980s, really. Okay? The result is many floating voters. As I'll point out, most voters today in Japan have no party identification. And that means they will change their minds on who to vote for very, very quickly. Very little stability in voting. Administrative reforms strengthen the role of the prime minister and cabinet in policymaking. And so prime ministers and cabinets matter much more now. They can make or break a party in government. They will be broken if they don't deliver quickly. The question is, why hasn't this brought a Westminster system? You can see the influence of the changing influence of, of uh, the prime minister here. Support, these are cap uh, support for the party, the LDP. The black line is support for the cabinet, which is really a stand-in for support for the prime minister. And as you can see, since electoral reform, support for the LDP hasn't changed very much. All that matters now in swinging voters is the ups and downs of support for the prime minister. Prime Minister Koizumi was supposed to have ushered in the new era. He was the first prime minister to understand what capabilities that the new electoral system and the new administrative reform had given the prime minister. The first to use them 
and the first to get anything done using them in the 2005 postal reform election. In 2005, as you know, he ran against his own party. You know, if you give me your vote, I will either reform the LDP or destroy it. My opinion, he did both. Oh. How do I get this to play? No, that's one of the, no, it's supposed to play. Huh? I don't know. Anyway, he does the macaron. There he goes. All right. Um, my co-author criticized me for using this. He said, he's doing the Macarena. Nobody's done the Macarena since the 1990s. Come on. But any event. He was the most successful prime minister since electoral and administrative reform. Since then, nothing but dysfunctional leaders and dysfunctional politics. A revolving door of prime ministers, and this is what I'm going to talk about next, incompetent prime ministers who can't adjust to the changed conditions, very unfair and complicated electoral systems with frequent elections, dysfunctional, and this is where Japan differs from Britain, bicameral, two houses. And this is a major part of the Japan's problem, is the relationship between and the problems of these two chambers of parliament. Diverse political parties who have become nothing but obstructionist in opposition, and fickle floating voters who will lose any faith whatsoever in any prime minister or any party very, very quickly. And I'll show you how quickly that has become in a minute. Japan has had more prime ministers than only one other country. I'll bet you can't guess what country that is. <laughs> Italy. We usually don't think of Italy, Japan in the same category as Italy, but in fact, it is. Seven prime ministers in the last six years, and it doesn't matter what party they're from, Democratic Party or Liberal Democratic Party. They've all flopped within a year and had to resign from office. Then. The LDP, which had been in office for so long, lost to the DPJ, the Democratic Party, in 2009. One year later, the LDP came back and won the House of Councilors election. I know of no other country where this could have happened, really. No other country. One year, a massive majority in one house and the next election, a year later, losing the other house. And I'll show you why in a minute. Great, stable Japan in the 1970s and 80s? No, sir. Instability. These are the percentage of seat change between 2005 and 2012. Okay. This is the LDP. You see how it goes down, then it goes way up. The DPJ, as we know, sunk completely after three years. And new parties arose in 20, 2012 and gained an awful lot of the seats. Huge instability. So let's look at the formal and informal institutional obstacles and then the voter change obstacles too. One problem Japan has is too many elections. Not only that, 
but too many elections of different types. Okay? House of Representative elections average once every three years, local elections every four years, and by fixed determination in the Constitution, House of Councils elections every three years. This is an average of one every year, year and a third, and every one of these elections is run by different rules. Six, Japan has six different electoral systems. You think the recycling system in Japan is difficult and complicated? Try the electoral systems. Six different electoral systems. If you're interested in, in the differences, the upper house is an open list, proportional representation, and a single non-transferable vote, multi-member system with large districts. The lower house is a small district, first-past-the-post, single-seat district system, plus closed list proportional representation. Local elections are, are essentially multi-member district SNTV, local uh, assembly elections, and Local executive elections are direct presidential elections. Six different systems. Hey, I didn't see you there. Hi. Good grief. A lot of old friends here. Okay. Um, what does this mean? It means, and this is one of the informal institutions, that if a party loses any one of these six different elections held once every year or so, his own party will pressure the prime minister to resign. This is just an informal institutional norm of Japanese politics within the parties. Mr. Abe, in his first time around, Abe won, tried to change that. He lost the House of Councils election in 2007, and he tried to stay on, and within a year he developed a very bad stomach problem and had to resign. Uh, within a month, a very bad stomach problem and had to resign. So, this means prime ministers often have one year to prove themselves before the next election when, if their party does not perform as well or pretty well, their power and party may pressure them to resign. And House of Councils election produces different party results than the House of Representatives. In these two chambers of parliament alone, we have four different electoral systems, as I said. And this is what happened in 20, 2009 and 2010. The, LDP, uh, the DPJ, as I said, won a large majority in the 2009 lower house election, lost the upper house election the next year. But look how they lost. This is the percent of the PR vote, proportional representation, for the party. You'll notice the Democratic Party won 30% of the vote of the PR vote. In the local prefectural SNTV part here of that election, and the Democratic Party won higher percentage than the LDP. But look at the seat results. LDP won more seats. Huh? That's what I said. The DPJ won both parts of the House of Councils election in terms of percentage of the vote and lost in terms of the percentage of seats. How can that be? 
Well, it's a very strange electoral system to begin with, but also it is malapportioned. Even worse than the lower house, whose malapportionment is about two, little over two to one now, the House of Councils is more malapportioned, favoring the rural districts. Many of these seats are predominantly rural in the local part of the election. The voters per seat are small compared to larger urban districts. You can see this here where the more number of seats, the larger the population per, vote, per seat going from rural to urban. Twice urban voters are half as represented, in other words, as rural voters under this system. And this is where the LDP won. It's stronger in rural areas. And given the malapportionment, the LDP won 21 seats to only eight Democratic Party. But after that, the Democratic Party did better. In other words, because of the malapportionment, the LDP won more seats than the Democratic Party. How bad was it? This was the vote change in most of the rural districts, excluding these four. Four percent of the voters changed their mind after, from the previous House of Councils election. This was the percent of seat change. Four percent of the voters changed their minds, and it resulted in 45 percent of the seats changing hands in these rural areas. This is a mixture of Malapportionment in both houses is a mixture of formal law. Part of it is due to the fact that there is a provision that each prefecture must get a seat, at least one seat, before the seats are allocated by population. That's really the heart of one of the hearts of the problem. But the Supreme Court in Japan has contributed to this with some informal norm which nobody quite understands. And that is, in the House of Representative elections for many years, when the disparity between the most underrepresented and the most overrepresented district went over three to one, they declared the election unconstitutional. They didn't force the diet to uh, change the districts. The diet usually did anyway by tinkering. But when it went below three to one, the Supreme Court accepted it as constitutional. <laughs> I've asked constitutional law scholars, why three to one? I mean, what, what's the, the magic number? And one, one of my friends has classmates who are on the Supreme Court, and he's a law professor, and he came back and he said, I don't know. <laughs> why this, somebody would have to be privy to the Supreme Court's thinking of why three to one is the magic number there. They are beginning to get a little more impatient with the malapportionment, however. And in fact, there have been recently 16 regional court cases declaring the 2012 election unconstitutional. Two of those have actually ruled that the election is invalid. The Supreme Court has never, ever ruled an election invalid. People are wondering if their Supreme Court is getting impatient, will get impatient enough to finally order the Diet to do something. There are political and legal reasons, which I can go into later, for why the Supreme Court doesn't order the Diet 
to make the system fair, but I won't go into those now. The difference, therefore, is often one house with the different electoral system and the malapportionment often has a different outcome than the other house. Nijire kokai, twisted diet, this is called. So what happens <coughs> in, excuse me, in a twisted diet? Well, if the House of Representative decision stands on budgets, treaties, and selection on prime minister, according to the Constitution, but on all other bills, if the House of Counselors doesn't act on a bill that the House of Representative passed within 60 days, it is deemed to be a rejection of the House of Representatives bill. So what happens then? It takes two-thirds majority for the lower house to pass the bill again, or the bill dies and has to be reintroduced from the beginning again in another session. So it takes a two-thirds majority in the lower house. To give you some idea of the fact how rare this is in the democracies, in Britain, a two-thirds majority has never happened, and in the U.S., only rarely. It has happened in Japan a few times in an overwhelming election. What about a conference committee? In the U.S. Senate, or U.S. House of Representatives, U.S. Congress, the two another bicameral legislature, the two houses disagree, the bills differ, they get a conference committee together, and they negotiate a compromise bill between the two houses. Well, Japan has that provision in its constitution. It's been used three times in the post-war period. The informal norm is you don't negotiate between the two houses. The House of Counselors was, uh, I'm reading an interesting book now on the origins of these, of this, of the House of Counselors and House of Representative differences, and uh, it was intentionally put in by the U.S. occupation as a check on the lower house. In fact, the Japanese insisted on it. Some people in the occupation wanted to abolish the upper house completely. The U.S. occupation, the Japanese lobbied, no, we need an upper house, we've always had one, and it'll perform a check on the lower house. And that's what was finally put into the Constitution. It's fine as a check. But it's now acting as much more than a check. It's essentially stalemating the political process. As long as the opposition under the previous electoral system was fragmented, it couldn't unite to oppose the governing party. But recently, given the new electoral system in the lower house, the two it has become more and more, up until the 2012 election, a two-party dominant system. And that means it is now easier for the opposition party, the main one, to challenge the government party, especially in the upper house. And it has been using censure resolutions to prod prime ministers to resign. The, the Democratic Party used it against Fukuda and Asa, for example. And then, as if all this wasn't enough problem with the diet, there's the problem of time. 150-day sessions. These can be extended, but usually require the cooperation of the opposition parties. Diet sessions, even with extensions, have averaged only 200 days in the post-war period. Plenary sessions and committee meetings, are, however, are held only three times a week. There's also a lot of holidays. 
Each diet is divided into three sessions, and each requires a prime ministerial policy address and a question and answer session, which takes time away from the business of legislation. Real work days in the Japanese diet are 80 to 100, years average, 100 days a year average. Italy and the US, for example, have twice as many work days. Many of you thought the Japanese were workaholics. It's not true of diet members. Add to that the fact that no legislation is car automatically carried over to the next session. If it doesn't pass, it dies and must be totally reintroduced again. Another example of a unique democracy. This gives the opposition parties a veto power over much of the legislative agenda of the governing party. It can delay sessions until the ruling party drops the bill it doesn't really like or compromises and gives it what it wants. This is another informal institution. It's not in the Constitution. As a result, the Diet passes only 80 to 150 bills a year, and the ruling party has to prioritize its legislation to get through only that which it really deems important and which the opposition parties will not delay and object to. If the ruling party takes advantage of its majority, which is the norm in most parliamentary democracies, by passing a bill over the opposition of the opposition parties, it's engaging in what is called a forced or snap vote. The result is often huge media and public criticism of tyranny of the majority, and the opposition will then boycott the sessions, losing more time to the government party until the ruling party apologizes. Again, an informal norm. Then there's the political party problems themselves. Two centrist parties, but very diverse, ranging from far right to moderate center in the LDP, from left to moderate center for the DPJ. And some representatives in each party are actually closer on po some policy issues to representatives of the other party. They have no consistent ideologies, vague, broad policy platforms that can change with each leader, and each is beset by personal rivalries and uh, factions. In recent years, the the both parties have become increasingly obstructionist in opposition. You might say Japan now has two Republican parties. <laughs> um, Steve Reed believes that they will become, over time, the electoral system will force the parties to become more unified and coherent with time, more like the UK. He may be right. But how will they use this unity in legislative politics? The DPJ gave the LDP a model before 2009 when it took power. It criticized uh, DPJ members when they were in power. It censure resolutions were passed challenging Democratic Party politics, and they constantly called for a new election. The Democratic Party had done exactly the same thing to the LDP when it was in power, when the LDP was in power. 
This has now become the norm of opera, uh, operational norm for political parties in the diet, obstructionist opposition parties. I have never, and I just a personal note, if you look at the way the LDP reacted to 311, I have never seen a country where in times of such enormous crisis, the opposition party did not try and cooperate with the governing party. It didn't happen in Japan. And what's even more amazing to me is that they were never punished for it by voters. So, given all these institutional obstacles, only a very, very popular and effective and skillful leader can overcome them, get huge majorities in elections, unify his party, and pass his agenda. Koizumi was able to with great difficulty, and even he had to compromise uh, with his own party on many bills. Okay. Abe, can Abe do it? I don't know, but there are huge voter obstacles to the immersion of even that type of prime minister. This is the percentage of floating voters in Japan. It's the light blue line up there. It's about 50% of the electorate now has no party identification whatsoever. This, these rogues gallery up here is not the uh, lineup for a police, uh, never mind. This, these are the six prime ministers before Abe too. These are their cabinet approval ratings. And what do you notice? The most popular of these, who the only one who was able to rebound from precipitous decline in popularity within one year, remember this is within one year for each, was Mr. Khan. And then he became popular when he promised he'd resign. To underline the point, this is the rate of decrease of support for the cabinet. Okay? You notice that after electoral reform and with more and more floating voters, what you find is that the average monthly decline in support for the prime minister is now between 4 and 7% per month. Try governing with that. So, maybe this solves some of the puzzles. The electoral reform and the administrative reform has given the Japanese prime minister the potential to be more influential and capable and exercise political leadership. But none of these other institutions, formal and informal, that I'm talking about changed. Only the electoral and administrative reform. And I think this disparity between the new potential that the electoral administrative reform gave the prime minister combined with the continued obstacles, institutional obstacles, to passing legislation and being an effective leader explains both why Koizumi has been the only successful prime minister since the reforms and why Japanese politics doesn't resemble the UK's despite some superficial similarities. So now we come to the final part here, which is going back to the future. <laughs> Mr. Abe was not happy in the top pictures. 
He's very happy in the final pictures. You're probably wondering why this is up here. There's actually a reason for it. What does two glorious scoundrels have to do with Mr. Abe scenarios? The reason is this is not the original title of the movie. It was changed in Germany, which I found out only when I was about to give a talk like this in Germany and had to scramble to. It was changed in Germany to Two Glorious Scoundrels. The original title was? Yes, very good. Very good. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Three scandals, not two. Anyway, the reason I use this is because I'm going to give you the good, the bad, and the ugly scenarios for Mr. Abe. The good scenario. He becomes a good transformative leader. He uses, as he has so far, his new capabilities of prime minister's position smartly. He does stimulate the economy through Abenomics, the three arrows, and wins the House of Counselors election, which he's bound to do. The only question is by how much. He uses that massive majority with his coalition partner, the Clean Government Party, to address Japan's many domestic challenges and does a fairly good job of them, perhaps even gradually implementing new taxes and selected cuts for sustaining pensions and passing some structural reforms that get the economy going in the long term. He downplays his normal instincts <laughs> and restrains himself, as he's done so far, with his right-wing policy agenda. The bad scenario. Notice Abe's three arrows do not say anything about dealing with the deficit. He is relying very much on stimulation of economic growth to deal mostly with the definite. However, some economists love Abenomics, including some liberal economists in the US. Paul Krugman and Stieglitz like Abenomics, surprisingly. However, others say that if it doesn't produce job growth, whatever else it produces, it will produce what we had in the 1970s, stagflation. That is, inflation without economic growth. It's possible the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, will split the LDP and they won't be able to get an agreement that includes Japan. The public may react against his right-wing constitutional uh, agenda and doesn't win as much big a majority in the House of Councils as expected. Nonetheless, he still tries to push his right-wing foreign policy and neglects the domestic agenda and he becomes more and more unpopular, and he could be out of office within two years. And the whole cycle of rep repetitive prime ministers starts again. That's only the bad scenario. There is an uglier one. <laughs> <laughs> the ugly scenario is Abenomics is not a, really a political strategy, not an economic strategy, to win the House of Counselors election. Once the LDP is in control of both houses, it, con it concentrates on its right-wing foreign policy agenda, including constitutional revision, neglects the debt problem, or hope it's solved by economic growth alone, and stagflation results, and 
conflicts are intensified with China. So how is that different from the ugly scenario? Abe's still in power. <laughs> I will end there. Uh, you know, when I first put this up, I just put this up to mean the end of my talk is there. So <laughs> somebody pointed out it had another meaning, you know, the end of the world is there. We can talk about that too, if you like. <laughs>